Acts chapter 1 tonight. We're going through the book of Acts on Sunday nights. I want us to see what it looks like to be an Acts kind of a church. Last week we took note of the church's obedience to Christ's word and that they returned to Jerusalem as instructed to wait to be endued with power from on high or as Acts says, to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. The main emphasis last week was how we find this church gathered together in one place. How they all continue together in one accord. They stayed in prayer. And we saw from that churches are meant to gather together in one location as they are able. Churches are meant to be in prayer with the power of the Holy Ghost so that we can be witnesses unto Christ into all the world. That's an Acts kind of church. Are you praying to be empowered from on high for the purpose of being an effective witness? For tonight, we're going to cover the last half of chapter 1. This is going to be a record amount of verses in one service. There's a lot we can unpack here, but I'm going to try to stay focused on one central theme, and that is transition. Acts chapter 1, would you look with me as I read verses 15 through 26. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue a seldama. I don't speak Hebrew, so that's what you get. That is to say, the field of blood. (laughs) For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we find here in the early church, they're already dealing with transitions. In particular, a transition of personnel. They needed to replace Judas Iscariot. We see in verse 17 that Judas was numbered with them. He had obtained part of their ministry. Judas was one of the original twelve. He had been with them from the beginning. They broke bread together. They labored together. They would have shared laughs together. They were close. 
Listen, you can't spend three and a half years together, day in and day out, nearly, without getting close to somebody. They were close. Or so they thought. Sometimes you may think you know someone, but come to find out you never really knew them at all. Because we can't see the heart. Jesus knew who Judas was all along. But others didn't know what was going on in his heart. And so there would have been sadness as all this was unfolding. I think sometimes we just view Judas as somebody that Satan entered and led this rebellion, forgetting there was three and a half years of friendship. Even though he might have been skimming on the side. And there would have been sadness there, losing a friend. Psalm 41.9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. That was written as a prophecy of Judas Iscariot. Psalm 55.12-14, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. Later on in that same Psalm 55, verses 20 and 21, He hath put forth His hand against such as be at peace with Him. He hath broken His covenant. The words of His mouth were smoother than butter. But war was in His heart. His words were softer than all, yet were they drawn swords. Boy, it hurts when you're portrayed. Those that you thought you were close to. Those that you thought were your friend. Those that you went to church together with. Those that you thought you were at peace with. So we can imagine here, I believe, that there's likely a wide range of emotions taking place within this group as all of this is taking place. Matthew 27.5 says, Judas hanged himself. He committed suicide after he defected. We get more information here in the book of Acts. It says here that apparently in the process of hanging himself, the rope would have broke or whatever the case may be, a branch fell headlong and upon hitting the earth and I love the King James. This is tailor-made for Brother DeGarmo to teach. His bowels gushed out. When Brother DeGarmo teaches Sunday school, this is what he needs to teach when he gets back. Oh, by the way, it's accepted that verses 18 and 19 there are parenthetical. That it's not Peter talking at that point, but Luke is interjecting his thoughts to give us some information to clear some things up. With Judas being a betrayer and now dead, there's a void among the apostles. The twelve are now down to eleven. Therefore, there's a transition of personnel. In addition to personnel transitions, there's also the transition of Christ's physical presence upon the earth. That is now concluded. He's ascended. After almost constantly walking with Christ for three and a half years, they would have learned to adjust to being led, they would have to learn to adjust to being led by the Holy Spirit. 
There's a lot of transition taking place here. Christ isn't there anymore to go to. Not in person. They would have been used to going to Jesus. Asking Him to help in a situation. Asking Him any questions they had. Going to Him when something didn't go right. Going to Him when they were discouraged. Going to Him when they were in fear. They would have, I would think, would have grown to rely upon His presence. But now Jesus is, is gone. He's ascended. He's not around in person to take control of this situation. They can't go to Him face to face and ask for help. Yet they have a transitional situation on their hands that they need to deal with. And so they're transitioning themselves as they're working through this transition. Is everybody kind of understanding what I'm trying to say there? Now, I want you to notice how this time of transition unfolds. Would you look first in verse 15? Peter stands up in the midst. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and he begins to speak. You may recall when we were closing out the gospel according to John, how in the last chapter, Peter said, I go a fishing. And the other disciples said, we'll go with you. Peter was apparently a natural leader. He got up to go fishing, they just followed him. Peter now, having been restored, he's, he's the one that stands up and he kind of leads this situation. It's clear at this point that Peter is a leader in the church. And we see from that, that through any transition that a church goes through, there must be leadership in place. Someone has to be at the helm guiding the ship. Jesus isn't there bodily to take charge of this situation. So it must be one who can act in Christ's stead. In this case, Peter's that leader. Within the church today, we think of these men as under-shepherds. Meaning that ultimately there's a higher shepherd in charge. And for us, that's our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the under-shepherd, I believe, is the pastor or the senior pastor of a church. One who stands between the Lord and the people, as it were. I would imagine all 11 of the disciples would have been considered leaders within this group of 120. They had been with Jesus for a long time. But they only needed one to oversee the transition. And a church may have many leaders, but there needs to be one who will lead during times of transition. You've heard the phrase, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Too many people running around with ideas. Too many people running around on how it ought to be. Too many people giving their... And so it ends up being a mess. Too many ideas get thrown around, and generally progress begins to stall. I'm not suggesting that a church is a one-man show. Not by any means. A pastor is to take the oversight, but he's not to do so by constraint or by lording over God's heritage. However, I am saying that there still needs to be a limit to how many people are trying to lead. So there needs to be one primary leader. Second, would you notice in verse 16 that the Word of God is to be our guide through transitions. Men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. So there has to be a leader There has to be 
the Word of God. Pastors, leaders must be those who can handle the Word of God. Peter had become convinced of the veracity of God's Word and how that the Bible, what he had as the Old Testament, was divinely inspired. He, he says that this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Look what he says, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David has said. Peter's recognizing that all that they had was from the Holy Ghost. It was divinely inspired Word of God. Why should we seek to change it then? He just doesn't say this, but he backs it up by giving a Scripture reference. False doctrines and even cults are the result of claiming what the Scripture says without backing it up. (laughs) Peter cites the Psalms. Let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. What Peter is doing here is actually common in the New Testament. It was common in that day, the way they quoted Scriptures, is they would just combine Scriptures in their quotes, knowing that it all applied to the same subject at hand. So what Peter is doing here is he's quoting from two different Psalms. Psalm 69.25 is the one that says, Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. And the end of Psalm 109.8 says, Let his days be few, and another take his office. So there's a combining here of these two Scripture references referring to Judas Iscariot. So where did they get this idea to replace Judas from the Scriptures? What does the Scripture say? Let another take his place. So in their minds, we have this mandate from God, knowing that the Scripture says Judas was going to betray him, let another take his place, we need to replace Judas Iscariot. Peter calls it his bishopric. It was called his office in the Old Testament. A bishop is simply an office, which means an overseer. So they needed another leader. Through transitions then, we see that we need godly leaders, and those leaders need to be led by the Scriptures, and they need to lead others to understand the Scriptures. That's what Peter is doing here. Now, there, is it okay we just do a Bible study? Because Okay. Now, they are seeking to transition another man into the ranks of an apostle. Because of the false teaching that is out there on apostolic succession, I believe I need to pause for just a moment and I need to explain a little bit of these qualifications. Because there is this idea today that there is an unbroken line from the apostles to today. Look at verses uh, 21 and 22. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that He was taken up from us, must be one ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. So, if we understand this correctly, the qualification then of an apostle is one who had been with him throughout Jesus' entire public ministry. Somebody that was there when Jesus was baptized at the hand of John, all the way until Jesus ascended back to heaven. There is some debate here as to what is meant by the last phrase, must be one ordained to be a witness with us 
of his resurrection. The debate is, does this mean that this one chosen, the reason he's being chosen is because he needs to be a witness, a testifier, a preacher of Christ's resurrection, that that's his work as an apostle, or does this mean that the one to replace Judas had to have seen the resurrected Lord? I have my opinion. I'll let you study that for yourself. Either way, it doesn't change the point that I'm about to make, which is this. The qualification of an apostle for sure, was one that had to be with Christ throughout his entire ministry. If you were qualified to be in this group, you had to be there with them after Jesus was baptized by John until he was resurrected. Therefore, the office of an apostle cannot be in existence today. And, and this is important because there's a lot of false doctrine out there, out there. Based upon these qualifications, it could have never been the belief these qualifications, it could have never been the belief of those 11 remaining apostles that this was to keep continuing on and on and on. Why would they have come up with these qualifications? Well, we see in verse 23, there were two men appointed to choose from. Joseph called Barsabbas, who's, who was surnamed Justice. I love how everybody had like multiple names. Amen. What's your middle name, Breck? Alan? Alan? That figures. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Uh, Breck, who we call Alan, surnamed Weideman. Um, and, and so he's got these three names here, Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice. And then poor Matthias, just Matthias. Because Judas's replacement had to meet these apostolic qualifications, we see that when it comes to transitions of leadership within a church, it needs to be men who have experience walking with Christ. Amen. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So we find that those that we place in leadership within a church have to be those who have learned to walk with Christ and those who are doctrinally sound about who Christ is that he was baptized by John, that he had performed all of this for three and a half years, proving he was the Messiah, that he rose again. We saw the resurrected Lord and he, we watched as he went back up into glory. And you had to be doctrinally sound on Christ. And, and listen, it's great when people aspire to leadership positions, but they must be patient until their walk with God has been proven through experiences. That takes time. Did I say this this morning or did I just say this to somebody this morning? Let patience have her perfect work. There has to be experience. They must walk with God enough to know where they stand doctrinally. Talk comes cheap. But when you go through the fire, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I better figure out where I stand on some things. So you have to be experienced and you have to have doctrine. The key for people aspiring to leadership, all of you young men in here that are talking about ministry, the key is do not get ahead of God. And that can be hard to do. Now, we see they appointed two. Who is the they? They appointed two. 
Well, it's either those who met the apostolic criteria, those within this assembly that had been with Jesus the whole time, or it's everybody within this assembly. They. Either way, we see third, that while there is one primary leader, while there must be leading by the Word of God, we see here, my opinion here, we see that the people of the church should have a time where they can give input. We're, we're, not, we're not one of these organizations where one person gets to do whatever he chooses to do, however he chooses to do it. Amen. We're not an autocracy. Is that how you say it? At some point, the people ought to have some input. And I think when we get away from that, we're, boy, we're close. We're, we're close to just blindly following. And you got to be careful. And, and so, giving the input from the body, major transitions ought to include what you think. Keeping in mind that it should never usurp leadership. I hope that's easy enough to understand. Now, I believe this can look different for different churches. In a church of our size, I think we can easily get everybody's input. But you start talking about a church that's running into the thousands, and I think that can be a lot more difficult. Maybe even more dangerous, but it's hard to get that many. So I, what I'm saying with that is we, some people will look at a church and they'll start to blast them for how they do their business, but it can be difficult depending on the size of a church. And listen, there's no mandated method given in the Bible. So I believe there has to be some grace extended to other churches. I'm talking to the, uh, the, the Baptist tonight, amen? Well, we don't fellowship with you even though you're a Baptist because you do your meetings this way. <laughs> you might think I'm joking. I, I know that church, they do their business meetings where they raise their hand. And, and they're just pressuring people. And they break fellowship over this nonsense. Are you in that church? Who cares? Okay, anyway. So it can look different. Uh, not everything is black and white. Now, I want to use this thought here real quick in verse 23 to address, to address tonight why we have church memberships. I don't see church memberships the way we do them in the Bible. I don't see where they have to come forward and they have to give a profession of faith um, saying they believe this set of beliefs. We understand that's what's taking place. But we don't see where they add them to a role. The pastor signs a card and hands it to them and says, congratulations, you're now a member of Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. Why do we do that? Why do we have church memberships the way that we do? I mean, we'll see at the end of chapter 2 that when 3,000 were saved and baptized, they were added to the church. The qualification just seems to be you've got to be saved and baptized. But we say you've got to come forward and you've got to request to be a member of this church. And I've often wondered, why do we do that? I know churches of our stripe that they make it plain, we do not have memberships. You can come in and come out. You can have says and not have says and all these things. But I just want to give you tonight, in case you've ever wondered, why do we have memberships? I believe official church membership is important in the day in which we live because of one word, and that is Protection. Protection. By having official church membership, it protects church voting integrity. 
when we have an issue come before the church and it's time for you to have your input, then we want to make sure that those who are having a say are of the same mind. Because there's a lot of nonsense out there today that they didn't have out there back then. This means in order to be a church member at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle, one has to give a testimony that they've been born again through Christ alone. Not their own definition of being born again, but what the Bible says. They need to be baptized in a like-minded church, and if not, to join, they need to submit to believer's baptism here. By immersion, all those things. They need to agree with our statements of faith. Those fundamentals that we said, this is why we've met as a body. If something needs to be voted on, then we don't want professed lost people casting a vote. Well, that's not very tolerant. Sorry. We don't want those who are living in disobedience by not following the Lord in believer's baptism having a say. You can't even handle step one of obedience. Why would I want your input on how the church should go? Sorry, that came out in my angry voice. And we don't want those with bad doctrine having a say. So membership protects the input and the, and the vote. I'm not against anybody if they say, I don't want to join the church. That's fine with me. Just understand that when it comes time to vote, you don't get a vote. That's really all membership does for you. Somebody came to me once about membership. I said, look, it really just comes down to do you want to vote or not? Otherwise, you're here enjoying everything else everybody else is. Amen. And so that's what it comes down to. It protects our voting integrity. But on top of that, it protects us now in this day in which we live legally. And this is sad that we've, we've gotten to this point in our country. But there are people who will come in and test to see if they can sue you. I am convinced this happened a couple years ago. Somebody came in. I'm not even going to go into details because I don't want it to come out wrong. And I was just as sweet as I could be. Yes, you are more than welcome here. <laughs> anyway, never came back. We live in a time where if we don't have our I's dotted and our T's crossed when it comes to the legality of things, we can get in trouble. And I don't want to see this church go down because of some frivolous lawsuit. So there has to be some legal protections in place. If we don't have these safeguards in place, then someone who comes along who isn't saved or of like faith, and they want to participate, but we say no, then we can face legal consequences. I don't know if you understand all this, but it's a big deal. And as pastor, I go to jail, so I'm extra concerned about, about these things. Y'all just laugh. Oh, the preacher's in jail again. Um, because of this, what just happened? That didn't, that didn't sound like a good laugh. That sounded like a rebellious laugh. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> he would. He would. Don't let Brother Mac fool you. He's one of the nicest guys here. I love you, brother. This is why there comes a point where I have to say one cannot participate in certain ministries unless they are officially a member. I would, I'm not against people wanting to sing in the choir, but I have to draw the line somewhere and say, you have to be a member. If I open that up to somebody who's not a member and then somebody who is clearly against where we stand, 
comes in here and says, well, you let them join the choir. They're not a member. You have to let me. I'm taking you to court. So you have to be careful. And there are certain ministries where I have to say, okay, you have to be a member to be a part of that. I will only perform a wedding here where at least one of the soon-to-be spouses are members inside of this building. Because somebody can come along and say, well, you gave this other non-member a wedding ceremony. Now you have to give us one. In case you don't understand what I'm trying to say, I'm talking about like baking cake scenarios type kind of things. And listen, I'm not against that crowd in the sense that I want to see them saved. But there are some scoundrels that are trying to look for an opportunity to come in and sow discord. So you have to be careful about what you allow to take place within the facility and limit it to membership. So while I cannot find our modern form of church membership within the Bible, I do see safeguards that it brings to the church when it comes to voting, and it protects the sanctity of the church, and it keeps those who don't have a vested interest in the church from having a say. Somebody that just comes in and we have this important vote, and they might be the tipping vote, and they're not even a member, that's, that's not wise. So, I just wanted to get that out of the way because I felt like I had an opportunity to say it. Number four, in times of transition, we see in verse 24 and 25 that we need prayer. Would you look at what it says? And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he might take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. So we must be in prayer through times of transition to be sure that we are heading in God's path, that we are fulfilling His will, and we should not make any decision until we are sure that we have heard from God and that God has heard us. Probably should say that the other way around. But we should continue in prayer until we know that God has heard us and that we have heard from God. Now, because we're going verse by verse, let's look at verse 26. <laughs> this is one of those I just assume skip. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This verse has been a source of debate for many. Why did they cast lots? Does this mean they voted? Did they get ahead of God by selecting Judas's replacement? Because was Paul the one intended to be the replacement for Matthias? Or for Judas, instead of Matthias? Well, I read everything I have access to. And I spent hours doing so because I got a lot of questions still. I want to give you some things to consider. Ultimately, I'm not dogmatic here, so I don't want to argue with you about it. I'll be happy to discuss it. I would love to discuss it. I love speaking Scripture, but I don't want to argue it. Okay, they gave forth their lots. So it does not say they cast their lot. So were they voting? Most believe this wasn't a vote, but they actually were casting lots. It just happens to say gave their lot. It is generally believed that when a lot was cast in those days, that they would take these little pieces of wood, same size, and they would write the name of their choice, and they would put these pieces of wood into an urn. And then Peter will say, would shake the urn up, get it all stirred up. They would turn it upside down. Only one could fall out at a time, I reckon. I don't know. Turn it upside down. Whichever one fell out first with that name was the one they chose. Congratulations, you're now the next apostle. 
Now, I don't know if you'd like to choose your pastor that way or not. I'm not sure I would want to know that, well, I just happened to be the first piece of wood that fell out. I mean, all right, let's do this. The truth is we don't know how it was conducted. Now, the fact that verse 26 says, and the lot fell, many believe this is proof that it was not a tabulation of votes, but that it was a casting of lot as I just described, and that makes sense to me. The lot fell. Fell out of this thing, and it went to Matthias. We don't cast lots today. But this was commonplace in those days. And many have speculated that because they cast lot, this whole process was not of God. And therefore, Matthias could not be considered the legitimate replacement to Judas. Many feel that the disciples here, that they got ahead of God, choosing Judas's replacement, but not waiting on God's time. And the reason many give is because Matthias is never mentioned again by name after this point. But neither is Andrew, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon Zelotes, or Philip. So that is not a proof positive that Matthias was not the legitimate replacement of Judas Iscariot. So what about Paul? Well, Paul wouldn't fit the qualifications. He wasn't a follower of Jesus from the time of his baptism until his ascension. And if we're going to say in order to debunk apostolic succession teaching that that's the qualification, then we have to be honest with the Word of God and say, Paul didn't meet the qualification. I think it's because Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles. I personally believe his office was slightly different than that of the twelve. Some would say that Paul even recognized that he wasn't to be considered part of the twelve. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of those who were eyewitnesses of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and that he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. He doesn't consider himself apparently part of that twelve. I know this is boring, but I'm loving this, amen. amen. It's a fascinating debate. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoy studying this to answer my questions, but I didn't get a whole lot of answers. Um, but here's where I'm at right now. And I don't think you're wrong if you disagree with me. But it seems to me that Matthias was a legitimate replace for Judas. Now, I may think differently the next time we come through the book of Acts. But for this time around, that's where I'm at. Still, the question remains, if Matthias was the rightful replacement for Judas, then why would God honor the casting of lots? Well, if it's true that God did honor this casting of lots, then I think it goes back to the theme of this message tonight. This was a time of transition all around. This is what they knew. And this is what their tradition was. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. I mean, they had Scripture to say, look, we're going to cast a lot. So, can we get away with casting lots today? <laughs> I just love the picture of doing this, you know. <laughs> or should we ever consider casting lots to determine God's will? You know, should we draw straws? I think the answer is no. No. Why do I think the answer is no? Because we now have the perfect law of liberty. We have the entire counsel that God wants man to have. 
And because we have the Bible, I don't believe we have to cast lots today. And I, I think we would be wrong in doing so. They did not have a completed Word of God yet. And because we have the whole Word of God, we are not in this same kind of transitional period that they found themselves in, in their day. We know, we say we do, and we should because the Bible tells us, but we know what it means to be guided by the Spirit. They're still learning this. This is the first issue they've had to deal with, with Christ not being there physically. And I think it's important to observe this in the, in the question of, is it okay to cast lots? This is the last time it's ever mentioned in the Bible. There you have it. That's my opinion on verse 26. Study it yourself. Amen. Now, let's bring this home so that we can go home. <laughs> I worked hard on that line, and it only got a little minor response. <laughs> the Lord knows what we need in times of transition. Listen, there's a lot of people going through transitions tonight. Military transitions, job transitions, family transitions, marriage transitions. We're always going through transitions in life. The church is always going to go through transitions. But the Lord knows exactly what we need. And from this text, I believe we can see how we need leadership, scriptures, church input, and prayer during times of transition. This early church, and I want you to get this, this early church was able to stay unified when they selected Matthias. They were still of one accord come the day of Pentecost. They didn't disrupt the unity. They didn't disrupt the one mind. The Holy Ghost still came in with power. Now, that's remarkable. There's 120 people gathered in the upper room. And yet, out of 120 people making a decision over somebody who committed suicide to replace his office as a leader in the church, there was no disruption. And they just kept going. You see, it's during times of transition that we have to be very careful. It's when we get tested. It's when we go through things maybe we've never been through before. And we don't know how we're going to come through to the other side. And if we're not careful during times of transition, we can get tripped up. We, we see it a lot. You, you may not have called it this, but we see it a lot. Somebody in the church has something drastic happen in their life. It's a time of transition in their life but they stumble at it, they get out, and they don't come back. Why? There was no leadership. There was no Word of God. There was no input from friends or close counsel. There was no prayer. It's just that all of a sudden, life blew up. Transition began to happen. What am I going to do? Forget it. This church was able to lose one of the original 12. A charter member, if you will. And replacing the office of this man, they didn't have any problems. I can't tell you. I mean, Listen, this is amazing, okay? Maybe you've got to be a pastor to really feel the, how awesome this is. No hiccups. Stayed unified. Transition in churches... They take place for a number of reasons. Uh, losses, as we see here, and that can be losses in a number of ways, but uh, through loss, mistakes that we make along the way, through trials that we face, and because of growth. And we've seen all of those. This church has been through all of those. 
There are also individual transitions through life. And for those of you as individuals that are facing transition right now, and it's, it's weighing heavy upon you, I, I'm encouraging you tonight, go to your church leadership. Get godly counsel. Go to the Bible. See what God's Word says. Get input from counselors. And make sure you're in prayer until you know that God has heard you and you have heard from God. And many shy away from transition because they hate change. When we shy away from transitions as a church or as individuals, we will lose the blessings of growth because we're unwilling to pay the price to transition. Well, I don't want to transition. I really like my class. Nobody likes to transition. But if you're not willing to pay the price of transition, you're sacrificing growth. Well, our church is going to face all kinds of transitions. As we grow, we need to be prepared and willing to transition into a new facility. Amen. That was us taking laps, amen. <laughs> Pastor Paul Chapel constantly reminds their church, a growing church is always in transition. And I, I, I like that phrase. It's kind of stuck with me. A growing church is always in transition. Don't get attached to a Sunday school room. Don't get attached to a class. Don't get attached to where you sit in church. Don't get attached to where you park. Because a growing church is always in transition. Leadership changes along the way. Will we be willing to pay the price for transition in order to keep growing and reaching more people for Christ? I sense we are eventually coming to a church building project. Amen. We have the land Amen. and $11,000. <laughs> At some point, are we willing to pay the price for transition in order that we can keep growing and reaching more souls for Christ? If we are, and I believe that you are, I think we all know we don't want to get ahead of God. We want to wait for His, His perfect timing. But if we want to be an Acts kind of a church, when we get to those kinds of transitions, we need to remember these four things that are laid out in this passage. If we're going to stay unified through the transition. So can I just encourage you on that note, don't get attached to this building. I mean, if you carve your name on the, on the post, we're not taking it with us. <laughs> don't get attached to it. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. <laughs> it's just a building. Well, anyway, I brought it home so we can go home. Let's pray.